All right, everybody, this is our, one of our special Gen Con episodes. You are not going to get a, an individualized introduction for each of our Gen Con episodes, so this is the one that you'll hear over and over again. I am at Gen Con right now, uh, or was just at Gen Con, covering all kinds of things from Wizards of the Coast. I'm also going to be attending uh, the Kobold Press Seminars, uh, going to some press events and more, possibly some interviews and that kind of stuff, so expect some more of that coming out, including this episode. And don't forget, these are relatively unedited. All I'm doing is slipping in the intro to the episode and the ad from our wonderful sponsor, Noble Night Games. Otherwise, it is pure, unadulterated Gen Con material. And speaking of unadulterated, that means we're not responsible for the content. Some of it may be risky. We're looking at you, Matt James. (laughs) Uh, We'll try to outline that in the show notes, so pay attention. And remember that large, sometimes loud convention rooms or exhibit halls or giant floors where there's a recording going on and a thousand people standing around, that will impact some of the audio quality. It may not be the best audio quality, but I guarantee you that the content will be the best content from Gen Con. And as we move into the the content that you're looking for... The, the thing that you're tuning in for here, we should mention, again, our sponsor is Noble Knight Games at noblenight.com. Check them out. They're a great game store specializing in out-of-print materials, but also carrying the newest in, in game books and, and other materials. Uh, so check them out and make sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. And with that, enjoy the coverage from Gen Con. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all, and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today. And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. nicest intro I've ever had. Um, but I don't know how I look, but I can tell you I usually don't feel like this till Sunday of Gen Con, so I think age is winning. But <laughs> it's good to be back. I, I had to miss last year. It's good to be back this year. Now, I'll just give you a uh, catch up on what's going on with me and the projects I'm working on and how the softball team's doing. And then uh, I'll open it up for questions because that's always a lot more fun for me than just getting up here and drawing on. Um, obviously, the Companions just came out. Um, if, you, if you haven't had a chance to read it, if, for those who have, don't spoil anything, please, because other people haven't. Uh, I'll give you one spoiler. Chewbacca comes back in the book. <laughs> so, but if you read the, if you read the forward, the, the, um, the dedication of that book, I meant it. This one felt right. It felt like a fresh start, and it felt like, I don't know, what, everything that's going on in the realms right now almost makes me feel like the realms in 1987 again. 
because that level of energy is back and that level of uh, cooperation, creativity, everybody trying to pull on the, in the same direction for a change. And it, it's been really an amazing couple of years that we've gone through with these guys. And um, you can feel the energy. Every, from I mean, the art team, the the right, all the different writers, the game designers, the brand team, everybody's on the same page. And we're all having fun. And that's kind of something that's important when you're working in the games industry. If you're not having fun, you shouldn't be doing it. And um, so the companions, it fit. It felt right. And I had that energy back. And I, and I could feel it when I was writing the book. And of course, for those of you who have, who have read the book, you probably understood that, understand that I, I got a little boost of energy along the way several times. I think the prologue of that book might be my favorite, the favorite thing I've ever written in the Dritz book, the pro, you know, um, about Wakia. Um, but I'll leave it at that. Um, so that's one thing that's going, and then the next book is done. The next Dark Elf book is called Night of the Hunter, and it comes out in February. It's done, it's in the can, it's on its way to the printer. I'm about a third of the way through the book for next August. Next book in line. I'm spending an awful lot of time in Menzo Baron's Island. That's the biggest spoiler I'll give you. The place is going crazy, which is always fun. <laughs> so there'll be two. Yeah, yeah. There'll be um, there'll be two books next year, and there'll be two books the year after. And after that, we shall see. But rolling along and having a good time. So it, it feels fresh. Um, the other thing I'm doing um, is I just did a Kickstarter. It's running now, it's got about two weeks to go. We, we funded, we passed the goal, and we just funded past our first art level as well, which makes me very, very happy. Uh, I'm working with a lot of the old guys from 38 Studios uh, for art and audio and logos and all kinds of good stuff, and it's a Demon Wars game. If you're not familiar, I have a Demon Wars series. I've written 11 books in that world. I love the world. I wrote the world four games as much as for the novels because of the gemstone magic system, I knew it would work well. And um, about 20 years ago, I made a game just for my group. And it was working out okay. It was just another game to play, so to speak. But um, my son was making a game. My son's a game designer, and he worked at 38 Studios for about six years. He was responsible for all the class balancing and the monsters and the combat, and all of that was him. He's a game designer, that's what he does. Not Gino, my other son. And he was making a game, and I looked at it, and I was like, wow, this might work. And so I showed him my old game, and he took them, and he put them together, and he made a game. We've been playing since January, and we're having an absolute blast. And I said, you know what, let's, let's put a book together. Let's, let's put this out. So we did a Kickstarter. And it, like I said, it just funded the 13 days to go, and we're really happy. And I got Scott Duquette, who was one of the... Scott Duquette, when he was graduating from Harvard, won the Blizzard Art Contest. So he was on his way out to work for Blizzard, I think. And we intercepted him at 38 Studios. He didn't want to leave New England anyway. And we got him in there. And within, within about two or three weeks of him coming in, all of the art started following him because he was that good. And his sweet spot is 12th century. Uh, cathedrals, monasteries, things like that. That's his sweet spot as an artist. And that's what Demon Wars Reformation is all about. So. Really happy. Can't wait to see the cover he comes up with. Um, so busy with that as well. I now have to produce a book in the next few months. And, but we're ready. We're, we, we, we know what we're up against. We're ready. It's going to be awesome. And then the other thing is my softball team. For those of you who don't know, we are Clan Battlehammer. And I'm a little worried because last night Clan Battlehammer played 
the best team. The team that last time we played them beat us by about 20 runs in five innings. I was pitching. The balls going over my heads were cracking like bullets in the air. So my team played them last night without me and we beat them 16 to four. So I don't think they're gonna let me back on the field. And when you have two sons, four nephews, the husband of your niece, his twin brother and their father all on your team and they won't let you on the field. And you pay for the team. <laughs> and they won't let you on the field. It's kind of heartbreaking, but. Play battle here is rolling. We won six in a row. We're firmly in second place. And the team we clobbered last night was the first place team. We put the fear of battle hammer in them coming into the playoffs. And this is just what we did last year when we won it all. Of course, last year we were 38 studios. Couldn't be 38 studios this year because the state of Rhode Island would probably have impounded my team and auctioned us off one by one. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's just it, having fun, rolling along, writing books, lots of books, making games. What more could a person ask for, right? So, with that, that's where I'm at. Um, I'll open it up for, oh, before I open it up for questions, I got a couple other things that kind of on the side. For those of you wondering, Audible has the first six books uh, from Homeland to the Halfling's Gem out. And they have all the books from Gauntelgrim and now the Companions as well at audible.com for audio downloads or buy. I don't know how they do it. But, and the next step is the Claire Quintet. They told me they're going to do the Claire Quintet in the fall. And then when they finish with those, they're going to go back and pick up with the legacy and do the rest of the Dritz books. But all the new books release simultaneously on ebook, audiobook, and in hardcover. And those ebooks, by the way, are available all over the world. So if you have friends in Europe who are complaining they can't get the books, down they can get them on ebook. I've got that right, right? I'm not sure. Oh. <laughs> Don't listen, he's not the books. Um, <laughs> Uh, the other thing is uh, the Cutter, the five-part comic series that Gino and I are, are doing. The fourth one just came out, I believe, and the fifth one should be coming soon. It's from IDW. It, and that will be put together in the graphic novel format this fall, I was told. And I love doing these comic series because they're actually kind of bringing things back into the books with them. The events of Cutter really set the stage for the book I'm writing now for next summer um, in the Silver Matches. You really are, in, in a way, you're seeing the beginning of the Sundering, uh, or one of the calamities of the Sundering beginning up in the Silver Matches in, in Cutter. So I'm uh, very happy about that. We had David Baldine as an artist this time, and he just knocked it right out of the park. He's amazing. So, very happy with that. Hope we do more. I, for those of you who have read The Companions, I can tell you that I would really love to do a comic series on The Grinning Ponies. Anyone read The Companions? Grinning Ponies comics? What do you think? Come on. Yeah. Halflings on ponies. Be a yeah, that's right. So, with that, I will open it up for questions, and we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. And I'll put my hat back on. <laughs> and by the way, I'm talking slow because Larry Elmore can still drink me under the table as he proved again last night. 
As we discussed, Medicare and AARP. It's a weird, 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 weird. Um, Seriously. <laughs> so with uh, the transition from, from third edition to fourth edition, they jumped Forgotten Realms 100 years in the future. So therefore, a lot of the characters that, that are not long-lived like Dritz are dead. Um, Wolfgar, for example, is one I was talking about. Um, <clears throat> is there any intention to go back and maybe do a short story talking about th other things Wolfgar's done? Did he reconnect with his tribe? You didn't read it, huh? <laughs> See, this is why I hate. This is why I hate doing anthologies. I'm serious. We did an anthology about two years ago, three years ago, called The Collected Stories, uh, Legend of Dritz, The Collected Stories. And it has all my Forgotten Realms stories in there. And there's a brand new story in there called To Legend He Goes. And it's about Wolfgar. Awesome. So, yes. <laughs> well, the problem when you're doing anthologies is, if, if you're doing a long-running series like I am, you, you have to make the anthologies make sense in the series. But you can't just rehash what happens in the books. You have to give people a reason to read the short story. But if not everybody reads the short story, then they go to the next book and they're like, well, how did Intrary get that sword? Mm -hmm. Or how did this happen? Or how did that happen? Because it's in the... So, like, one of the things that happened in... Now I'm doing the same thing but with the comics, right? So in... People are reading um, La uh, The Last Threshold and were like, what's the deal with Quinn? They hadn't read the comic. And so I, I try to blend the two back and forth, but it's hard when you're using different forms, short story, you know, because not everybody reads the short stories. And that's why I don't like doing them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to waste people's time too much, but I do want to tell you that there was a friend of mine uh, who's a really big fan of yours. And uh, he passed away in January from uh, lymphoma. And we were talking before he died, and he had said that he wanted me to come here and tell you thank you, because when he got diagnosed, one of the few things that kept him going for as long as he was able to go, which was about eight months, was being able to read your books. Wow. Um, so I wanted to say thank you. I'm sorry it's a bit of a downer, but... It's not a downer. I mean, it is a downer that your friend lost his battle, but it's... it's, it's... You have to understand what I'm doing here. I realized a few years ago, actually when I was putting that anthology together, because when I was putting that together, I had to read all the stories that I had written previously, because they wanted me to annotate them, you know, at the beginning just say, well, what is this story about? Why did I write it? And when I did that, it kept throwing me back into a time and place that I was at when I wrote the story, like the first notch with Brunner, or the Curious Sword, or the Guinevere story, whatever. It put me back. It was almost like looking at an old photo album. Okay, when I was reading my own short stories over the, from over the years. And that's when I had my epiphany about what I'm doing. Remember the old Cosmos series, Carl Sagan? What did Sagan call that? It says it in every episode. He called it a spiritual journey. I feel the same way about my writing. It's a journey. My writing is my way of making sense of the world. I, I take all these things and I, I, I put my characters under pressure and I bounce all these things off them that I'm trying to figure out. So what you're telling me here is, is, is the second epiphany that I had 
It's that for a lot of these people in this room and otherwise, maybe not so much people just coming to the books, but people who've been reading these books for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, they're on the journey with me. And there's an amazing connection there. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the Kickstarter. Because Kickstarters are personal. You can't hide behind a marketing team. You can't hide behind anything. You're in the pits with the, with the people who are backing the product. So when you tell me a story like that, it just reaffirms what I've come to know. And that it's, for some reason, somehow, when you, when you walk this journey for all these years, I mean, last night was, we did the 25th anniversary of Drift. It's really 26 years for me. I wrote them in July of 1987. It's when he came, when he was born. You know, more than a quarter of a century. And there are people, I don't know if any in here, but there are people who've been reading these books since 1988, right? So, in a way, you're on the journey with me. So when you tell me that about your friend, it just reminds me of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And what this is really all about. So thank you. Yeah, he wanted me to... When he got into those last few weeks, he wanted me, because he wanted to come here, but obviously he wasn't going to make it. So he said he wanted me to come here and say thank you. But he also wanted me to really an anecdote to you. Is this um, about Chewy? I don't want to hear it. No. <laughs> Not he doesn't like Star Wars, but anyway. Um, one year, the first year that uh, we were here in Navy, we were standing in, in one of the booths at the exhibit hall. And he was looking for something from you that he didn't have yet. And he asked the vendor if he had anything published by you. Some guy walks behind us and said, don't buy anything from him, he's a bum. And my friend is really upset about this. And he turns around and he's about to say something to the guy. And I grabbed him on the shoulder and I said, stop. And he goes, why? I said, that was the top celebratory. I remember that. I thought you were like hearing that story. You wanted me to tell you that story. Oh, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I love doing stuff like that. I, um, yesterday, I saw, we walked in, I had to do a signing, and I was pretty much cutting it close. I had to get there. And I walked in, and I saw a bunch of dark elves sitting at the table. So I walked over, and I said, what house? And they're looking at me like, what? What do you mean? I don't have a house. I'm like, you drop on you. What do you mean you don't have a house? You have to have a house. <laughs> and then, after about, they, they're like, what the hell? <laughs> Some guy looked at my badge finally and he goes, oh crap! <laughs> I love that stuff. That, that, that makes it all worthwhile. I mean, I do it in, I do it in the computer games. So, you know the pugs in Warcraft, right? So I'm in a pug, which is an adventure. And, and I'm playing a character named Brunner with two R's and a little dwarf paladin. And I go into the pub, and the person running the pub was named Inovendo, the elf, right? From the Lone Drow and all that. And I get this private message from the, from her, him, her, I don't know, it's probably a guy playing a girl, you know, you never know. Salvatore yeah. <laughs> um, so for the win. And I said, I wrote back, what? Salvatore, the books. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, where did you get that name? And I said, I don't know. I think it was, I think it was a random generator. I just, yeah. I said, oh, you should really be 
enjoyed the books and being really nice about it. Oh, you should really read these books. They're awesome. And the character that you named Bruno, the character is great. No, 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 no. I'm only kidding. I read. The, I know the books. And this one, for I said, oh, what the heck, right? So I said, I, I told, I'm going to say her. I don't know if it was a guy or a girl. I'm going to say her. I told her who I was. I said, this is, I'm, this is Bob's novel, so I'm just teasing you. Yeah, right. <laughs> so then why would I lie about it? I mean, well, why would I lie about it? Okay, if you're Bob Salvatore, then, in Strings of Silver, and then the questions started coming. Now, this has put me in a bad place. You have to understand something. I remember seeing Strings of Silver in 1988. Okay, I'm in my mid-50s. My brain is leaking here. But I'm answering the questions, and I'm like, and, and finally, finally comes the question, well, if you're Bob Salvatore, what was your name? And she named some mud game, right? That I had never heard of in my life. And I said, well, I have no way. I would never even heard of that game. Well, Ari Salvatore was in that game, so you're lying to me. <laughs> I, well, okay. And they kicked me out of the group. <laughs> I'm like, dude, do you ever think the other guy would have been lying? <laughs> I love that stuff. <sighs> anyway, who's got a question? That's it. We're going to go down front and up back. I want him to work off that meal he just had. <laughs> I sell it from somewhere. Yeah, I'm surprised. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to bug you about today. Today. Um, <laughs> To add to what, what he was saying back then, I don't have a question, but uh, I've been reading the Grace books for years, and um, I just uh, brought my son here. This year is first gen con. And, uh, How old is he? Twelve. I better watch my language. Okay, thanks. <laughs> but uh, I started rereading the series with him. And oh, that's awesome. And uh, what I just wanted to say is, is, I don't know, maybe you realize, maybe you don't, but um, thank you for giving him a role model that's better than anything that he could ever find in, on TV in the real world. Driss is, is someone that I, I think that you can emulate. Did you, did you read the dedication, I mean, the, the, yeah, the dedication and the companions? Yes. No, I didn't. Yes. I didn't. Yeah. That was amazing. That is, someone will read it for you in a minute, I'm sure. <laughs> but, um, oh, thank you. And you, you know, it, it's amazing to me because the, my, my um, belief from the beginning has always been that the hero is the one, not with the biggest sword, but with the biggest heart. The hero is the one who does what's right because it's right. And it, it's always bothered me in pop culture that we just don't do that anymore. You know, we, we worship celebrity for no reason. And, you know, it seems like bad guys win and we applaud it sometimes. And I, that has always bothered me. But you know, it's funny because my book signings have become like Fleetwood Mac concerts. <laughs> I have uh, grandfathers with their sons and their granddaughters and they're all reading the books, you know? And I'll never forget uh, when the dance 
tour came around, Fleetwood Mac was out at, a, at an outdoor amphitheater out in Boston. I took my kids to a Fleetwood Mac concert in an outdoor amphitheater, and boy, what a mistake. <laughs> I'd forgotten what rock concerts were like. <laughs> and there was this strange smell in the air. <laughs> no, stop. <laughs> Actually, when Will Wheaton did the forward for one of the Legend of Dreads books, he talked about how he, he had a stepson, a teenage stepson, and they weren't really connecting. And one day he walked in the room and they, they and he looked over and he saw uh, Crystal Shard. And he said, oh, what's Dreads up to? And it helped him and his stepson get on the same page. And I thought that was a really nice forward. But again, like I said, other people are on the journey with me. And that's what makes it special. Do you want me to read this? I ain't reading it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Here's the dedication to the, to the companions. This book is dedicated to anyone who believes that the hero isn't the one with the biggest sword, but the one with the biggest heart. Who believes that doing the right thing is his own reward is simply because it's the right thing to do. Who believes in karma or divine justice, or simply that the greatest reward of all is being able to go to sleep with a clear conscience. This book is for good children. It's okay to be corny once in a while. <laughs> You've earned it. Driss has earned it. Who's got a question? I'm going to be out here early today. Ha. Oh. We're just getting rolling. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I am one of those um, people who's read the books for about 15 years. So I wanted to thank you so much. I've been here just with the companions. Amazing. I won't spoil it. But great book. Um, I have a question, and I probably a lot of people have already asked it, but um, at the beginning of your chapter, there's a, a just is talking about personal experiences, very lots of philosophy there, and lots of in-depth things. Is, is there any book that will combine all of those little excerpts or thoughts of that in the future? I just thought that would be really awesome to have like, a journal of just story. Yeah, um, we actually we actually did it once, very early on with the first Menzel Baranzan set. There was Dritz essays in there, and I've actually asked Wizards, you know, let's do an audio book, and I'll read them. And they said, <laughs> I'll do a Kickstarter for it. Those, those are probably the most controversial parts of my book. And because I think a lot of people don't understand what's happening in there with those, with those things. See, when I, when I was going, after I wrote the first three books, the Iceman Dale trilogy, they said, we want to know where he came from. So I figured I was going to be doing a series based mainly on this character. So I was thinking, maybe I'll do it first person. And then, but the way I write battle scenes, that would never work. Because if I'm writing a battle scene and Dritz is fighting someone here and Gruner's over there or whatever, there's no way he can be telling me what's going on over there without getting stabbed, right? So it doesn't work. And so, but I decided, I would then, that's when I decided, because I didn't have them in the original three books, the, those essays weren't there. They started with Homeland. I went back and put them in the three books and we put them together in the omnibus later on. But we started those with Homeland. And it was because I just wanted to, to get to do a little first-person writing and get into his head 
But what people don't understand about those is when you're when you're reading those, like people say to me, Dritz is why is Dritz preaching to me? You know, he's not. He's not even talking to you. He's talking to himself. And he's being honest. And if you can't have moments where you talk to yourself and they're actually honest with yourself, then you're never going to solve any problems in your life, right? I mean, the, the bottom line is that you can go out and pretend to be whoever you want to be when you're out in public or out with friends or out with or trying to impress a girl or a guy or whatever. You can be whoever you want to be then. But when you're alone, you got to be honest. And that's what he's doing. And if you read them that way, it changes the whole timber of it. He's not being preachy. He's yelling at himself. So, I love writing those. They're, they're, I always look forward to coming up on the end of the section so I can get into the next essay. They take me longer to write than the, the longer chapters, too. Those are the ones that... The only thing that takes me longer to write than them is like the poem I did, that sonnet in, in the last couple of books that's been kind of playing through. That took a long time. Those things are hard. <laughs> next question. Oh, he's going to stay back there. He's lazy. <laughs> Um, at the risk of sidetracking your conversation, please do. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I read a lot of interviews and coverage leading up to uh, the release of King's Game War Game. Yes. Talking about the Lord that he wrote with the collapse of Black Hole that is almost 30 years now. Smoldering Black Hole. Smoldering Black Hole. That's impressive. Is there a snowball chance of hearing, learning, meeting more of the Lord that you wrote for that role? No. I wish I could tell you. Um, I mean, unless somebody buys the intellectual property from the state of Rhode Island, it's, uh, it, they own it. This is, they blew it. When the company was faltering and couldn't get the funding, had they kept the company together and put it in receivership, kept that team together, because an intellectual property is a team. When they let the team walk, when they let the engineers walk, and they let the artists, these are, these are some of the most talented people in the industry, 38 Studios. It wasn't a bunch of guys in the garage who said, let's pull people off the street. It was a couple of guys in the garage, me and Kurt and Todd, and some of them who pulled people from the best companies around. I mean, we had people, we had top engineers from Blizzard, EA, Midway. We had half of Sony's team, I think. Um, and... So these people all found, most of the people from 38 were able to find jobs again in fairly short order. And once that happens, the, really the world died with it. And it breaks my heart because Reckoning really wasn't, Reckoning was this tiny, tiny slice of this 10,000 year history that we had created. And it, in fact, most of the stuff that was in Reckoning was added by big, huge games. It wasn't even things that were in the original skeleton that we had created. They were, they were, it was getting thicker. Our wiki on the world is hundreds of pages long on you know, the different ages that the world went through. The, this empire, that empire, the first cataclysm, the coming cataclysm, and all the rest of it. And um, yeah, it breaks my heart. I mean, there's... It shouldn't have happened like that. It really should. The team deserved better. And uh, I just, in fact, I just saw Kurt chilling. He was here. He was just leaving. And we saw each other. And, you know, it, it, you think back on it and you, you're, you're angry at the way it ended and what happened. But at the same time, I saw another friend here, Michael, who was like our top engineer 
He's the one that really breathed life into the game back in 2006, breathed life into the world. And he's working out of Google now, and he was here at the convention. And these guys are like lifelong friends now. So when I'm doing the Demon Wars thing, who do I call? I call Brian Labore and Joe Mirabello and Aubrey Hodges. We're doing a video, Mike Hanberger, one of the engineers from 38, does the video for us. And I call Aubrey and I say, Aubrey, you know, I, I don't want to just use some clip art uh, music. Do you got anything lying around? He goes, no, but I can compose something. So that video on the Kickstarter, if you listen to the music, that was composed by Aubrey Hodges, who's the guy that won all the awards for the Halo soundtrack. I mean, this guy's amazing. And he, he was so excited to come in. He's an artist. He also did the map. If you see the map in the video, Aubrey did that. He's a sound guy. But he's incredibly talented. And Joe Mirabello, who wrote a book and I edited, edited this book for him. Um, and he put it out, a uh, book called Armpit of Evil, which is hilarious. I mean, it is one of the funniest spoofs on fantasy you'll ever read. He was an environment artist at 38. So Joe's going to do some art for us. And Brian Labore, who was an animator at 38, did that Demon Wars logo. This one. He did the lettering, except it's all done in illumination on the video. And he's going to do some art for us. And like I said, we got Scott Duquette. So these are, these are people that we, these people have become lifelong friends now. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch forever. And so it's hard to feel bad about it. And you know, again, it's that journey, right? It didn't work out the way we wanted it. And I got to tell you something. I'm not just saying this because no one can prove me wrong. But that MMO we were working on was freaking gorgeous. It was gorgeous. And, you know, I can't help but think that had, had we gotten to launch, everything would have been okay. We just couldn't get to launch. As more and more game companies are finding out now. But... So it's, it's not really a painful memory for me at all. It's, it's kind of a, that was a really amazing few years. Yeah. But it was. <laughs> Who's got a question? Poor James. <laughs> uh, how often do you sit down and just game and have fun? Um, I used to play computer games a lot. I mean, we raided, I raided the Blizzards, WoW, and EverQuest is my game for years. Um, I haven't played a video game since 38 collapsed. I've looked at Neverwinter because there may be some things, you know, I, I mean, I helped blow up the place for them. Um, but I haven't played a video game in a year plus now. Um, I will. I'll go back to it. But right now, I just... But I game every Sunday night. Uh, I'll probably game Sunday night when I get home. I'll be home in time to play. And we play D&D. Um, &D. We were playing first edition and second edition hybrid. And now we play Demon Wars Reformation. And we have about ten people around the table eating pizza and throwing pizza at each other and having a good time. Every week. Every week. Yeah. I, it's part of my life. If they ever get D&D next out. I'm a big fan of the Demon War series. Uh, love Marcalo. Marcalo is my favorite bad guy. Apologies to all the other Mr. Prairie fans. 
my favorite as well. If you could talk a little bit about him and just tell us what your inspiration for him was and, and if, you know, just talk yeah. about Marcalo. Marcalo is a monk who is really bad. I mean, he can, he can take on anyone. He's, he's, because he's a fanatic. But he's so convinced that he's right. He's so convinced that he's looking at the bigger picture. So as he's tearing that peasant's head off, he's doing it for the greater good. Now he is, he is so messed up. He firmly believes that everything he's doing is in the service of God. And he is as evil as anyone I've ever written. But he doesn't think so. And the character, I mean, I adore I adore. I adored writing that character through the books. Absolutely. And I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, it just, as I go back. Spin off. Huh? Spin off. Spin off, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, now we're into the zombie apocalypse. Um, the Demon Wars world is coming back to life. Kickstarter funded. I'm doing a novella for it. The novella's gonna explain why the game is taking the shape it's taking in the church. Why the church, because the church, Dean Arrow took over the church. I'm, without giving too much away, let's just say the church didn't make out very well when Dean Arrow got the reins. Yeah, but it was really not making out well when he took over. So, you've come to this point at the end of the Demon War series with the book Immortalis where the world is in major flux. And I, often when I sign that book, Immortalis, I'll put What Price Victory? And I did that with the Demon Apostles too, because they won, maybe? <laughs> you know, but what was the price? What's, what's really coming out of that? Um, and so the novella is going to explain how the, the Southern influences in the form of a couple of characters that were in those books are going to help the church figure out how to go forward and reestablish itself. In no small part by having teams of, of fighting monks to help keep the peace against all the other trouble that's brewing. And with the game and the development comes the very strong possibility that I'll go back and do more books. Because I love that world. That's my forgotten realms. I mean, this is a world I created and I have complete control over it. And so, at the same time that I can play in Ed's sandbox with these guys and have a blast, and we are having a blast, all of us are, I really want that world where I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. And so, you know, this Kickstarter is the way to bring it back, because I really, the, the, the whole publishing industry has changed dramatically, and I really don't want to go back to a publisher. I mean, I've got the publishers that want to do more Demon Wars books. Those books sold pretty well. But I, I really don't want to do that. I want to have control over that world. So for everyone who backed or helped spread the word of the Kickstarter, you have my profound thanks. Because this is going to buy me that second creative outlet that I want to bring back. And it's a pretty good game, so you get your money's worth. Promise. <laughs> Question? Yes. Someone? You find uh, who do you read for fun if you have the time? I don't as much as I used to. Uh, then who inspired you initially to, to start writing? I, I started Tolkien uh, when I was in college. I was a math major in college. Uh, school had beaten the love of reading right out of me. And um, my sister and 
my freshman year of college gave me a copy of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings in that white slipcase from Valentine, mid-70s edition. And um, I wanted money. Because, I mean, I had, this, I had this really cool 69 Cougar that broke down like every day. And I needed money to keep my car going, so I'd go to school. And she gave me books. And I was like, what am I going to do with this? So I just threw it aside. Two months later, we had a blizzard. The blizzard of 78 up in New England. They still talk about it. I mean, it's in commercials for Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, you walk to, if, you, if someone says they lived in New England their whole life, you say, oh, blizzard of 78, they'll give you stories for about three hours. It was the, so I went to bed on a Monday night, and they said we might get a little snow. And I'm thinking, cool, I'm out of school tomorrow, right? Everyone wants a day off now and then. I wake up, I look out, my car's missing. I freaked out, I thought someone stole my car. I'm running downstairs screaming that someone had stolen my car. And then I realized that that little black spot I saw wasn't the driveway, it was the roof of my car. Uh, so there was no school that week. There were no roads that week. And I'm serious, it was a full week. You, and as a matter of fact, if you got caught on the road, like in a snowmobile even, you would be arrested. State of emergency. We were in lockdown. Place was, the town was buried. So I was trapped, 19 years old, trapped in my mother's house. <laughs> Yay! But I wasn't. I went to Middle Earth. It was awesome. And I remember. I remember what it was like being a kid, reading those books. You know, Wind in the Willows, Charlie Brown, whatever. And going on adventures. And I kept thinking, why didn't someone give me, I'm looking at The Hobbit, you know, I'm thinking, why didn't somebody give me this book to read in the eighth grade instead of Silas Mother or Ethan Fromm, a golden freaking dick? <laughs> and after that, I just, I changed my major and I started reading all the classics. And within a year, I was reading Chaucer and laughing at all the right places. And I was reading Dante and, and understanding it as it related to my life growing up as a Catholic kid in New England. And I was reading Shakespeare and getting it. And it just brought me back. And so that's like, to this day, my favorite letters are the ones I get from kids that say I never read a book until. Because that's when I feel like, yay, I've won. I've done something right, you know? And um, so, you know, from there it was Terry Brooks and Fritz Leiber. And then um, Dragonlance books, Margaret Tracy and Legend of Puma and Weasel's Luck was awesome and Kendamore was so funny. And then when I submitted my book to uh, TSR, they said, well, we don't have any room on the schedule for independent books. We're only doing Forgotten Realms books. Do you think this book would fit there? And I said, well, the Forgotten Realms, they weren't out yet. And there was no internet back then, so no one knew that they were building a new world or anything. And so they sent me the first published thing they had from the Forgotten Realms. It was a book called Dark Walker on Moonshade by Doug Niles. And it blew me away. And I went, yeah, I want to play in this sandbox. <laughs> and then, you know, I read all the Realms books in the early years, and I just couldn't keep up. And I have a problem that when I'm, when I'm writing, I can't read as much as I want to. And um, so I have to find those times between books to try to, and I write, I read really slowly. I have to read every word. I'm not one of these people that does this and changes the page. You know, I'll spend two minutes on a page. And so, um, but I have a pile right now, and the two books on the pile right now are The Hobbit again, which I started before the movie came out. I'm on chapter three. Um, 
started when the movie was announced. I'm on chapter three. And I have Brimstone Angels by Aaron Evans because everybody at Wizards has said, you have to read this. And I love Aaron to death, so I can't wait to read that. Those are the two that are on my to-read list. And, but I don't read a lot of fiction anymore. Not nearly as much as I should or as much as I want to. Because one of the things I, I have to keep doing as a writer, Fitchburg State College, my alma mater, just started a game, a game design major, and they asked me to be on the board of advisors for it, and I am, and they asked me to teach a course. And I may, when I get some time in a couple of years, or a decade or whatever, but if I do, the course I would like to teach wouldn't be writing, it would be world building. Because one of the things that I think is missing and for anyone, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of writers in here, yes? Yeah. Hands, writers? Yeah, of course. It's a fancy convention. You're supposed to be. Um, being able to, to design a world that makes sense is probably the most important aspect of the background of whatever you're writing. Because if the world doesn't make sense, you're asking the readers to suspend disbelief on pieces of the world, as well as on the magic system, as well as on characters doing things that too heroic for people to actually do, and things like that. So world building is an art. And the only way you get to that point is to be able to understand history and understand cultures. So that's what I focus on. Like another book that's, that's I'm ready to read is Zealot by Raz Aslan. And it's a historical look at Maybe it's a different viewpoint on who Jesus might have really been or what the surrounding the world was like around him. And these are the kinds of books that I devour when I get a few minutes because they don't interfere with my writing because they're not fiction books, right? And at the same time, they're informing me going forward as I'm learning more about the culture and the times. Because it's that old saying, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So you have to know history if you want to write books. So, hopefully I'll get to some books. James will go out with a microphone and get a question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> First off, my brother just wanted to say that it's really good. What's that? My brother just wanted to say that it's really good. Oh, it is? Yeah, good, good to know. <laughs> Uh, based on your experience with an iconic character like Chewbacca, have you ever given any, <laughs> <laughs> have you, have you given any thought to what you would say if Wizards of the Coast came up to you and said, kill this? Well, first of all, Wizards of the Coast would never say anything like that to me. I'm not kidding. That's not the way they operate. People are under this mistaken impression that Wizards of the Coast is telling us what to write. They're not. They're telling us what the world is. And I suspect that that conversation would go in the other direction. And they would say, <laughs> I mean, Have you seen the Creole box? <laughs> um, but no, I mean, we are in control of our characters in the realms. If we weren't, there's no way I would have had a 26-year journey in the realms, the way I have. And I suspect that's true for a lot of the authors. That's not the way Wizards operates. They will ask me, like when I was going to write the next Wizards book, are you going to be anywhere near the city of Neverwinter? Why? Well, 
they're going to do a computer game on Neverwinter, and if you're in that area, there's some things we'd like done. Well, let's talk about it. So I go up there, we meet with Cryptic, and meet with the Wizards team, and we talk about what Cryptic needs out of a book series to basically have Neverwinter in a state where they can recreate it in their game. And I'm sitting there thinking, they're going to let me finally blow up a city in the realms. How cool is that? <laughs> and it begins a cooperative process. And for that particular one, Rich Baker was sitting across the table from me. And Rich Baker and I have the strangest relationship because we hardly ever talk outside of the room where the creativity is going on. And then we sit there and we one-up each other. <laughs> It is, it is a war. It's like a competition between me and Rich. And he's really good. <laughs> I love it. And I, I, I mean, I, I backed his Kickstarter for Primeval Fool. You bet I did, because Rich is involved. It's going to be good. It's that simple. It's going to be good. And we just sit there and we just bang ideas at each other, right? But nobody's telling me what to do. They don't operate like that. They never would. Well, I can't say never, because that was one of my problems with fourth edition. Not fourth edition, the game, but the fact that they were advancing the world a hundred years. And they weren't asking us, they were telling us. And it was like, and we walked out of that meeting, which was a very strange meeting, because we had never had one like that before. And they agreed with and I looked at each other, and they had said, what are we going to do? They said, we're going to be smarter than they are, we're going to stop talking now. And really, that's when the sundering began, by the way. And I'm not lying. That's, that was really the infancy of the sundering, coming out of that meeting, me and Ed. That is true. When we had the, the meeting, to start talking about the sundering, I started off pitching a couple of ideas, and then Bob and Ed said, well, how about this? Well, <laughs> that was two years ago at Gen Con. No, two, six, five years ago at Gen Con, or whatever it was. How many, when was that? It was after my, I did a seminar. And when the seminar ended, that's when you started pitching the sundering to me. And I said, no, no, sit down. We already got this covered. <laughs> and of course, what we gave them was just a tiny piece of it, because then the team got hold of it. And we all got in that room. And the ideas just started going out here, and out here, and out here, and the whole world had drawn in. So, I mean, I just gave them, you know, me and, I'm not taking credit for the sundering. I'm, Ed and I came up with little pieces of things we wanted, we were looking forward to doing because we knew that something like this was going to happen eventually, where they were going to, they were going to say, we need to make this world fresh. And we had ideas of how we wanted to do it. And then we gave them the idea, and they listened to us, and they said, okay, well, what can we go from here? And then you brought in people like James was a big part of it, and Rich Baker was a big part of it, and Mike Merles. And the editors, Fleetwood and Nina, and all of them were in there. And the brand team was in there. And, and the other authors from The Sundering came in. And those that couldn't make it, like Aaron, who was at home with her baby, uh, were Skyped in and were part of that summit. And I left that summit and I went home and I couldn't stop writing because I was so energized. Because that's what the creative process is supposed to be. Have you ever, there's two movies that I'll recommend to you if you are creative people. If you, if you, especially if you want to be a writer or a musician. One is, it might get loud, and the other one is Sound City. It Might Get Loud is a movie where they take three guitarists, Jack White of the White Stripes, uh, Jimmy Page of Zeppelin, and The Edge from U2, and they put them in a room. 
and they talk about the creative process that they go through. And when I hear this guitarist, The Edge, talking about he has a sound in his head, and he has this wall of equipment behind him, and he plays with that equipment until it makes the sound that was in his head. I can relate to that. And then the other one, Sound City, I watched it on the plane coming back from Paris. There's, they talk about the creative process and how it's being lost because people are sitting in their bedroom with a program on their laptop making their music instead of being in a studio with other artists and feeding off the energy. And as someone who went to the Sundering meetings, I get that. Because that's, you really do feed off that energy. So, Wizards would never, never, never. Star Wars is a different animal, altogether. You know, Lucas wanted to hit the dog, he called the Italian. <laughs> Who else has a question? Um, Andres Weapon, why did you choose scimitars? I like the flowing blade, the curve, because I always thought of him as, as he's doing more of a dance than just a straightforward like fencing style or a brute force style. And I like the idea of, one of my favorite movies is, and this came out way after Dritt, so I didn't steal it from the movie, is um, Crouching Tiger, right? And the fight scenes in it are so beautifully choreographed, right? And it's all about movement. And Dritt's is, you know, he's fighting is all about movement like the disciples of St. Gwendolyn in this game are all about movement. That's the way I picture battles, okay? I was a hockey player, and you're on skates, so you're moving and whacking people. It's, and the scimitars just, to me, really accentuate that turn. And that's why I picked them. See, it wasn't just random. <laughs> and it wasn't because they do two to eight instead of one to eight. <laughs> It's the mid-maxer. <laughs> you know, I, I've been hearing that from DMs for, hey, you guys, my group want to play Dritz. Thanks a lot, pal. <laughs> and I never really understood the depth of that screw him attitude until the first time I played Baldur's Gate. And I'm playing Baldur's Gate and I go running down south of the city and I'm running in some woods. And I see a dark elf. And he's got these two cemeteries. And he's dancing around and all these gnolls falling dead around. He says, hey, help me kill the gnolls. And I'm like, oh, this guy looks familiar. <laughs> I had no idea he was in the game. So I go down there and help me kill the gnolls. We kill the gnolls. I am dressed. Ah. Give me your cemeteries. <laughs> no answer. Give me your armor. Your bracers. Your, I'm going down the list. One of you around? You know what? And he's not answering. So I attacked him. I wanted to stop. And he wiped the floor with my gun. I'm sitting at the computer, freaking much. 
Then I got a letter from a friend in Canada, and he says, Boy, I'm real sorry, can you forgive me? I was playing Baldur's Gate and I killed Drizzt. I will forgive you if you tell me how. <laughs> and he did. And, my, and because of appropriate saving, <laughs> my entire group had Drizzt's equipment. <laughs> Hey, I'm sorry, loyalty only goes so far. I want to go <sighs> I was playing EverQuest once. And I, so I was playing Point. And so I come running out of Caladine. I'm second level. And I see Bruner. And he's fighting the trash, the yard. You know, EverQuest, you gotta fight the yard trash. If you go two feet away from the place, you're dead. You gotta fight the yard trash, make a level, get the next thing. Go fight the yard trash two feet away, make a level. I'm second level. Or I'm maybe I was third. He's first. He's fighting the little snakes and stuff right outside of Caladine. And I see him fighting, and I see Bruner. And so I shouted, Me King. <laughs> Ran over and one shot at the snake. You can't ask me! Me King! You, what the heck? He's typing at me, what are you doing? You're chaosing me. And I'm like, me king. That's all I've been typing at. <laughs> I chased that poor son of a guy. <laughs> all the way to Fedar. <laughs> I'm reporting you, me king. <laughs> he reported me. Well, I know everybody at Sony. <laughs> The GM who shows up is named Rumble Tummy. <laughs> Bob. Hi, Patrick. How are you? <laughs> what are you doing? I said, make a milk and cookies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> like, I, I, I tried to text him and talk. He wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> Jason and he's like, leave me alone! <laughs> <laughs> this went on for like two hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm a real jerk. <laughs> Who's got a question? I gotta change this up. <laughs> I'm also mean in those games. Before you get a question. <laughs> I was hunting the ancient cyclops. And I was doing everything you're supposed to do. I was killing the I was killing mummy, not the mummy, at sundown. You know, all the rumors that were around the ancient cyclops would spawn like once a year. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd camp out in this desert looking for him for weeks. I'm not talking game weeks, I'm talking weeks. I lost weight. Because <laughs> I wouldn't eat. And I finally got the ancient site, and there's one other guy out in the desert with me through all these nights. And we became kind of friends, you know, talking, chatting. And I got the Cyclops, and he congratulated me, and I went and got my journeyman's boots, and it was a really important item to get in EverQuest, because you can run faster than the monsters now, and you don't die nearly as much. So I was playing a wizard, I come back at the cell row. One day I was, I was running up, and I poured it in, and I'm running, and I saw he was, I did a hoo in the zone, and he was in the zone. I, I hadn't seen him in weeks. This guy that I had met when we were camping the ancient cyclops. So we're chatting a little bit. I go over a dune and there's the ancient cyclops. I'm like, I got him, get over here. Because I've already got my eye, right? I'm get over here, get over here. 
I'm trying not to kill him, but I, I was a couple of levels higher then, and I, I blew him away. So the Cyclops dies. So I kneel down to loot him. I'm not looting, but I'm kneeling down so no one else can loot him. I'm telling him, get over here. I wanted this, my friend to get this, right? So he comes running over. I go, okay, standing up. I stood up, this other guy ran by, took the, took the ring of the ancients, and went running up. And I'm like, no, don't, I'm yelling at him. And he's like, and the guy starts taunting me. He starts shouting, ah, ha, ha, you know, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And, and then I'm like, dude, I'm gonna report you. And he logged out laughing. Yeah, go ahead, don't catch me. Oh, so he logged out. So I wrote his name down. I didn't report him. I might report him, I could care, it's a game. I didn't report him, but I wrote his name down. I had it tagged up on a sticky on the computer. <laughs> now I'm playing a wizard. I mean, we, this was before the Bizarre was in the game, so if you wanted to sell items, you went to Greater Fade Arc at the Wizard Spires. So I'm in Greater Fade Arc, and I hear, I need a, can I get a port, paying 10, 10 gold for a port to North Karana? Or translocate to North Karana? And I, I do that to people all I, They'll tell you, make friends in Everquest. You port them, you rest them, and things like that. You use what your class could do. That's why I love that game, because you needed friends in that game. You couldn't, soloing that game was hell, unless you were a Jew, Druid. Um, you know all the designers play Druids, right? Of course. Munchkins. And, and so I was about to respond, and I looked at the text, and I looked at the sticky note. Okay. I'll put you. So he comes over, and I hit him with the group, I hit him with the translocate spell. This is like a year later. This is right when Kazakh Thule had been upgraded to a super high level dungeon. Nobody ever reads translocate spells, they hit okay. So the little bar that he thought said, Camuriel, that was my wizard, wants to translocate you to North Carolina, really said, Camuriel wants to translocate you to Kazakh Thule. Okay, he disappears. I get out of the room. I get a tell from him. Oh man, you messed up. Come get me. What are you talking about? You messed up, man. You put me in Kazakh Thule. I'm like, oh, I hear that's really bad. Um, I'm not going there. It's really bad. <laughs> yeah, he's talking to monsters right here. Come get me. I'm like, you got J-boots, dude. I'll run them. <laughs> I love the profiles. <laughs> um, between transitions to the lone crowd and the never saga, there was a definite change in tone and style of writing. Um, and reading companions, it seems like it's done a complete 180 again. Uh, what's brought you to uh, switch your you know, to, to bring a different style to, to the companions? The sundering. I often sign the last threshold with the line "the darkest night." Also sign the ghost king, "the darkest night." I always sign the companions, or often sign the companions, "the light of dawn." We had to go through that. The character, you know, here's the thing. For all my griping about the, the leap in the Forgotten Realms, it put me in a very uncomfortable place that made me a better writer. Creatively, it really pushed me. It pushed all of us. So, from that perspective, I think it was a success. I mean, I don't, from the transitions in the Neverwinter series, I love those books. 
they hurt like hell, but I love them. And I was feeling the same thing Dritz was feeling. If you read the essays, if you, if you, he kept trying to fight through it and could never quite get there. The whole time, through seven books, he kept trying to fight through it. Oh, Dahlia, you know, this is my answer. No, this isn't my answer. Where's Caddy Bree? And the companions were like a breath of fresh air for me. You know? It was like, it was like the sunrise. And um, it, and just to give you an idea of how, of how this happened, like I said, it's a journey, right? It's, this is a real journey that I'm on emotionally. And the next book is done. I sent it to the editor. And this has only happened to me twice in my life. But Nina came back to me and said, Bob, don't take this the wrong way. This book doesn't need an edit. The only other time that's happened to me was Mortalis, which is still my favorite book. And, you know, I think The Companions is right up there with Homeland as my favorite Dritz books. The Companions, Homeland, The Highwayman, and Mortalis are probably my four favorite books at this point. But it, I, it felt like it was okay to get, a, to get a skip in my step again. And I think you see that most when you're reading about Spider. Right? Yeah, Spider is um, it's classic escapist fantasy. And it just felt good, it felt fresh. It feels like 1988 again. That's a good thing. Another 26 year ago? Huh? 26 years? Oh boy. <laughs> Maybe if they kick me off the team and I don't get hurt on a softball field. <laughs> 26 years from now, I'll be like, dirt. <laughs> Who's got a question on that, Jerry? Nope. <laughs> no, but yeah. You, you mentioned about Wiki before, um, and I know many different authors, authors use different tools. To I mentioned the what? A wiki I think I called him a dog. Um, <laughs> okay. Do you use a wiki for your own uh, uh, personal? Oh, writing? wiki! I thought you said a wookie. No. no, no. <laughs> I won't bring Do I use a wiki? Yes, yes it's online. It's called the Forgotten Realms Wiki. I am right, I'm serious. I write with that open. I write with. I write, and I have my little Google search, and I'm like, "Who is the name of that weapon again?" And I go, "So and so weapon." Boom. There it is. Thank you. <laughs> and then I make sure it's a page that is not like some fan making his own weapon that I'm stealing from him. But yeah, that's my resource. It's awesome. Um, you know, I don't have to go flipping through the books anymore. I've got all my books in PDF form. So I just go into the book and I do a search and boom, I'm right back to the place I need to be. Right? It's, it's very cool. I mean, it's a lot more... It, it's a lot more efficient than impersonating an anonymous message board poster. <laughs> Some people get that. <laughs> when I was writing Servant of the Shark, I was psyched because Joel Axel's finally gonna get the spotlight within Trary, right? And I'm like, cool. And you know, Joel Axel had been in a bunch of books in cameos. I don't even remember all the books he was in. And every time I always thought Joel Axel was my walking day as Mac and I. Right? My walking, like, 
Batman utility belt. Because no matter what happened, he had like, this is Dragon! I have my Dragon repellent. <laughs> you know, this is Joe Axel, right? This is his whole shtick. So now I'm going to put him in the book, and I went, and I only have four months to do the book, right? And, I, and I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. Because I had no idea what this guy has for equipment, you know, what he's found, what he's lost, what he gave away, what he kept, what he stole from somebody. I have no idea what he's outfitted and how he's outfitted. So I've got to go back and like read all my books and take copious notes every time Joe Axel shows up. And I've only got four months to write a book. And so I went on a message board anonymously. And I started a thread. And I said, hey guys, let's do a cool inven an inventory of Joe Axel's cool items. <laughs> And three days later, I went and downloaded a 10-page thread <laughs> that had every item. It had the, it had like a bibliography with it, you know, page 137 of the legacy. Joe Axel has this, and da, 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 here's what it does. And thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but the wiki's quicker. <laughs> but be careful if you have our wiki. You have to correct things when they're allowed. Well, if I gotta call you, <laughs> I'm careful. I'm care I double check. That's what I mean. I do. I, I have to keep double checking because when is this canon or is this famine <laughs> or whatever, you know? So um, yeah, you have to be careful. But it's better than the Emerald. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got a question? I was hoping to be something. Oh, darn. Sorry. Um, so you usually are a fan of using intelligent magic weapons. Have you ever thought of using any other type of item or armor? Story-wise. I don't understand the question. Um, intelligent armor? Yeah, that'd be creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Here, let me give you a hug. <laughs> um, okay. Um, thinking about now. The closest I think I've come to that is the Crimson Cape and the Crimson Shadow series, right? Yeah. Luthien's Cape, yeah. right? He leaves a little Crimson Shadow where he's been. That's interesting. Intelligent armor. Crystal Shard. And the arrow didn't like getting hit. <laughs> Why do you keep running into battle? <laughs> it's good work. <laughs> Read on. <laughs> so, in reading a lot of your earlier books, I can really tell you have a genuine affection for Cadbury, Bernard, those characters. I can tell you really love them as you write about them. I see it in every passage that they're in. Guilty is charged. I'm sorry? Guilty is charged. My question is, as a writer, have you ever written yourself into a situation where you could have seriously punished them, but because you loved them so much, you gave them a gift? No. No. Absolutely not. Uh, I'm a poor wolf guy, right? He was supposed to be the hero of the first book, and I spent the next ten books beating the ever-loving tar out of him. <laughs> Getting him captured by a demon and tortured for six years in the abyss, turning him into an alcoholic. I mean, I put this guy through the ringer. 
Um, no, the story is the story. And I have to tell you something. See, it's hard for me to say this without spoiling anything, but when it's time, it happens. And when I, when I, when I wrote at the beginning of the Ghost King, my, the prelude to the Ghost King, when I, not, not the prelude, but the forward, when I was talking about how every day I would get up and I would watch three videos that put me back in the darkest place in my life. Three music videos would put me back in the darkest place in my life. Because I had to be in that frame of mind to write that book. That's how much it hurt. But I had to write that book. And I had no idea where the series was going. You know, to me, there was finality with the decisions all along the way. From Homeland on. Because I don't know that, well, Zach and Fan will be back in exile. I mean, every now and then there were tricks thrown in, right? The end of the Crystal Shard, Bruner's pretending to be dead because he's trying to go Dritz to go to Mithra Hall. The end of Streams of Silver, I knew Bruner wasn't dead. If I spoiled that too bad, it's a 24-year-old book hit over it. <laughs> um, I knew Bruner wasn't dead, but I wanted the reader to think he might be. And then I put a little clue in that maybe he's not, right? Um, so you do those things, but there were times in the legacy, I thought that was it for Wolfgar. And true story, the only reason Wolfgar came back when he did was because I had had a very ugly breakup with TSR over creative differences. And I knew at that time they were getting someone else to write a Dritz book because I was leaving. And I knew that if I didn't bring Wolfgar back, that's what they were going to do to get that right out of the New York Times list. And I would be damned if someone else was going to do that to me. That's why I brought back Wolfgar. That's why Dritz found Guinevere in the water out the end. That's why Bruno Scars healed in that book. So, okay, you want other writers to write it? Here, they're back vanilla at the beginning. Have fun. You see? Um, but you don't know that those things are going to happen. You don't know where the road's going to take you. And so, when I wrote The Ghost King, when I wrote Gauntlegrim, you know, I found an elf, are you kidding me? I, I'm crying like a baby when I'm taking those scenes. It hurts like heck, it's like losing a friend. It's a journey. Yeah. So no, you can't write like that. If you write like that, you're cheating. If you're cheating, people will see it and they won't believe you and they won't want to read you. James is very happy you put your hand up right next to me. I actually was thanking One of the things about writing a fiction to share with the world is that things sometimes happen to people, places, and things either you create or largely define uh, that someone else wrote about or that the game designers changed. Is there anything that to the game that involved um, in the history of your writing that didn't involve your core characters? That's something that you care about, uh, being places and things. Um, that got changed by something somebody else did that you either really liked or you didn't. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I wrote a short story called One of Our that detailed um, the creation of the Panther with an elf named Joseph Diastaro in Myth Dremel. And I was thinking that one of the series of books I would like to read, or write, read, yeah, I'd like to read it, that's why I wanted to write it. Um, 
would be Drinsden Catherley, Catherley using his magic to reach into the Panthers' memories so I could tell the story of Joseph Iostaro. But then right after I did that, he showed up with a bunch of game products that I didn't even know about. And his whole life was pretty much detailed there, so that was the end of that. Um, then another one was the Double Diamond series that they did, which was partly done out of spite by one person, I'll let it die there. But people were like, well, you're going to use the Trary? When I came back, you know, after the breakup, when I came back, they're like, well, how can you use the Trary? Well, it's not just a skeleton. I said, no, it's not. And they said, well, the Double Diamond book, I said, what are those? No, it's not. And I just ignored it and went on. It's my dream. Blinkenstone got moved. I didn't know about that, and I really liked, you know, good old Bellwell. Um, that got moved. Um, and, but the best one was when they went to second edition. And I was writing Homeland at the time. And I got a phone call from Jeff Grubb, who was coordinating the realms at the time. Love Jeff. Brilliant. And he says, hey, Baba, how are you going to kill Entreri? <laughs> and I said, I'm not killing Entreri. I'm writing Homeland, right? I just finished Halfling's Jump. Entreri was getting interesting. <laughs> I'm, like, well, I'm not killing Well, you have to, because second edition's coming out. And the assassin class is gone. And all the assassins are having their souls sucked up by an evil god. But we thought, you know, since Intrary is your character and he's kind of cool, we're going to let you kill him the way you want. And I said, Jeff, I'm, I'm writing Homeland. It takes place probably 80 years before Intrary is born. Do you want me to kill his grandparents? <laughs> and he's like, well, no, 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 but we'll let you get to But how are you going to kill him? So I'm not going to kill him. And we got this big fight. And I couldn't understand why he was saying I had to kill Intrary. And, and so finally I said, Jeff, look. He said, Bob, you have to kill him. The assassins are all gone. I said, I, I just don't understand. Why do I have to kill a character in the book that I'm enjoying? And he said, because there are no assassins. And I thought about it for a while, and I said, he's not an assassin. <laughs> and Jeff said, what? He said, he's a fighter rogue who takes money to kill people. <laughs> And Jeff started laughing and he goes, we can do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's part of being in the shared world. And for the most part, the people involved, when it's working right, those things are very rare. Okay, those things are very rare. The communication is good. And there are other times, you know, you have a lot of turnover companies, different people come in and go out, you have a lot of different authors coming in and going out. You know, I mean, you look at the, you go up to Wizards of the Coast, up there I think there's probably three people working there that were working at TSR when I was working at TSR. I mean, that's how much, there's huge turnover. So these things happen, a lot of times they happen inadvertently. That's one of the bad things about working in shared worlds, that those things can happen. The flip side of that is the good things that happen in a shared world. 
I got a, um, an email from Brian James, and he said, Bob, uh, they're going to go to press with this, and, and I wanted you to know if you want to look at it before I went to press. And I said, and it was the new men's of Brian's album. And I went to what? I was like, oh, no, right? But I know Brian. And he's, he's, he's really good game designer. And so he sent it to me. And, and now Wizards was like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, and there was no bad feelings. We were trying to figure out. So I went through it, and they were, they were saying, okay, well, I'm using this guy in the book, so here's the way I'm going in the book. And, and they would make the adjustment. So then it started working really well. So now someone else did the new, the updated Menzo Garanzano book, which won't be updated as of next summer when I'm back there because I'm blowing the place up. But anyway, spoiler alert. Um, I'm using that book. That book is an amazing source for me now, resource for me. I've got it, it's on my desk, it's on my taskbar when I'm writing. And whenever I'm writing about the houses, it's boom, the book is up and here we go. That's the beauty of shared world. You get to stand on the shoulders of other creative people. So that more than offsets the occasional burp, you know? So, yeah. There you go. I came across your work kind of by accident. Back in 93, you were going to be at a gaming convention in Springfield, Massachusetts as a guest author called Contrary. Yep. So I went to the local get, you know, bookshop in Salem, uh, New Hampshire, and picked up uh, Street and Soap. Luckily, the person I knew had it. Uh, never did find it at the convention, but it started reading it. I read a lot of Tolkien and other things, but I didn't really read a lot of, a lot of books. And got back into, into reading your works for, for years on, and my son has, has, has followed on after me. Uh, so I just want to say thank you for that. I really appreciate uh, the journey that I've been on with you for 20 years now. Um, the question really is, when you have all these different characters in the same world, how do you kind of keep them compartmentalized when you're going from, from one Forgotten Realms group to another Forgotten Realms group, you know, all, and they all end up all the same in all the time, or, you know, hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> how do you do that great question? You know, that's a good question, actually, and, and I was writing, I forgot what book it is, but I was writing a book many years ago, and I was really having fun with it, and I think Elaine Cunningham read it, was reading some of it one day, and she said, if it hadn't come out yet, thank God. And she said, who's this character? And I was like, oh, that was one, oh yeah, that was a friend of him. And I went, oh crap, that's Demon Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Completely, you know, blanked out on it. And, you know, that, so yeah, it's hard when you're doing that. And um, sometimes you gotta be careful. And I remember one time when I was writing it was, it was one of the second Demon Wars series, and I'm writing it, and, and Brian, my son Brian's looking over my shoulder while I'm typing. Gino, come here. And Gino's, they're looking over my shoulder. Dad, um, so this is going to be the new father rabbit of the church, right? And I'm like, yeah. And Gino goes, he's dead. <laughs> what? You killed him three books ago. <laughs> Son of a gun I had. <laughs> That's when I hired my kids. <laughs> I need style sheets, guys. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's been a lot of years. And you, you, I've done 54 or 5 books now. And um, I'm old. Grand Lakes. 
things happen. But yeah, you have to be very careful about that stuff. Because one thing I know, one thing I know, if I make any mistakes at all, <laughs> I just got I just got my seventy fourth email that said, you know, Bruno sitting on the throne and the companions. I mean, Reginald sitting on the throne and companions. And he's talking about Urtu. Urtu wasn't there. Has anyone else caught that? 74. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it, you guys will catch me. It's hard. <laughs> That's why I was so sad when Phil Athens left, because Phil had been my editor for 12 years. And so he knew everything. Like, he wrote the Dritz tabletop book, right? And then Phil left, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Fortunately, Nina's awesome. But, oh, no. <laughs> Is that wiki? <laughs> Jumping back to the more for the last two-year reformation, between what you and your son separated, what makes, what, what gets you so excited, more excited when you play together as a group? What, like, uh, it's, it's, it's inside of it. All right, Demo's Reformation, thank you for that. Anyone wants to take a picture of my chest, I got a QR code on it, you can go right to it. Um, the way we did it is Brian knew that what I wanted was a throwback to the old games, where you didn't have to find tables to resolve everything, where you had to be agile as a DM and as a player, where you could improvise. And so what we did, what he did, I'm giving him all credit for this, he's, he's, Brian, you have to understand, Brian, when he was in college, a philosophy major, he was on the cryptic, on the mythic message boards for Dark Age of Camelot, and he was helping them balance their characters. Okay? He's been doing this since he was a little kid. He's a game designer. This is what he was born to do. He was going for a degree in philosophy for pre-law. My wife actually talked him out of it and said, you want to be a game designer? This is what you were born to do. And anyway, so Brian, he got, Cryptic was going to give him a job. And then they found out who he was because he wasn't posting under his name. And they said, hey, are you related to him? He said, yeah, it's my dad. Oh, can he come to our round table out in Vegas? And so Brian and I went to the round table with the Mythic guys, which was a blast. And that was the, by the way, the origin of the Wubba Wubba story, was at that round table. Actually, it was at Gen Con. It was the first time I told it. The round table one went viral on YouTube and Wubba Wubba. And Kurt Schilling inter intercepted him, too, and said, oh, no, no, you're not going to work for them. You, you're not going to play for the Royals when the Hall of Fame's come. He said, you come here, play work for us. So Brian was working at 38 Studios, and they put him in, and we got a new CEO at the time who thought it was just pure nepotism. And there's probably a little of that, but too bad. Um, but who said, you know, we'll make him an assistant, an assistant designer three or something. Just made a thing up for him. By the time 38 Studios had moved to Rhode Island, even before that, Brian was a designer three, designing all the classes, doing all the monsters, and all the combat for the game. And nobody did a thing without checking through him. He was in charge of the systems, pretty much, working for two of the best systems designers in the world. So he came up with a game, like I said, and we married it to my old game. And the way it works is, 
if you play Dungeons and Dragons first edition and you're say eighth level, you might have what sixty hit points, seventy hit points, depending on the class, constitution, all that. In this game, it's not like that. In this game, your hit points go up very slowly. So when you're, you know, eighth level, you might have twelve. And what that means is that that little goblin with the little sword better not let him hit you. I want to say this correctly. Brian says it better than I do. If you go look at the updates over at the Reformation thing, Brian has done someone on the game that I think will explain this better than I can, but I'll try. This game uses the concept of balance points. And think of balance as... I always think when I'm writing my fight scenes, my battle scenes, I'm always watching the feet of the characters because that's more important. When you're fighting, I was a bouncer, I was a boxer, when you're fighting, the whole point is to get the other guy off balance. Then even if he hits you, there's nothing behind it, right? And when he's off balance, you hit him, he's going down. So, you have balance points. Now you have an armor rating, depending on what you're wearing, your level, your class, whatever. And so let's say you have an armor rating of 55. It's all based on percentage dice. And I roll, with, with my monster bonus, I roll an 80. I've hit you. But you can use balance points to up your armor class, to dodge it. But you have a finite number. And depending on which type of monk you are, and which, which skills you've taken from the trees will determine how many of those points you have. And so balance becomes, if you want to jump off a railing and swing on a chandelier and land behind the orcs. In our game, you can do that. And the, the game master will just make it a really hard check. And you'll make your roll and your check. And then you can spend balance points to add to that roll. The good news is your balance points let you do that. The bad news is if you get caught and you don't have any balance points, you are in real trouble in this game. Because you can't take the hits. So what happens is you have characters who are like tank-like characters, if you will, and they can block for other people with the staff or with their hand, whatever, their hands. You have strikers who are fighter DPSs. You have gemstone magic users. And you have another class that's it's almost like a battlefield philosopher. This is the disciple of St. Gwendolyn, who can move through the battlefield and can do things like hit an opponent with an unbalancing strike, which means that monster can't use its balance to block your striker's next attack or the next attack that comes at it or can use their thing to give balance back to characters. If the, if, the, if the St. Gwendolyn monk moves in between the tank and the striker, who are both getting low in balance. And that's the thing about this game. You look like you're winning. Nobody's taking a hit. But you look at the balance points around the table and you know you're in trouble. Because when, you're, when your defensive monk is out of balance, he can't block anymore. And when your striker monk is out of balance, he can't do his flurry of blows or his circle kicks or any of his big moves anymore because he needs that fuel if you will. So if you're out of all of those things, it's like when you're playing in a dungeon in, in EverQuest or World of Warcraft and the cleric's out of mana, right? You're, you're in trouble. Even though you look like you're winning, all of a sudden the battle turned. But this St. Gwendolyn monk can feed balance back with the moves. It's like a battlefield philosopher going through and putting the monsters off balance and putting, giving your team back the coordination they need to continue the fight. And it it sounds complicated, but it's incredibly simple. You've got 10 balance points. You just put 10 poker chips or 10 pennies in front of you. And as you spend them, you just slide them up. And if you get one back, you go, you know, you get one back, right? And you can do a refocus action and get a balance point back. And it plays beautifully. 
And, it, and it's just, you work as a team. And the way, as a DM, what I've done now is I, they've got, we've got nine people playing. So it's a huge group. It's too big. I hate playing with that many. I like playing with four people in any game. But anyway, with nine people playing. And if they've got an agility, you know, the St. Gwendolyn monk with the, with the St. Belfort monk with the, uh, Saint, the disciple of St. Bruce, who's the strikers, you've got those three monks together side by side, they're almost impossible to kill. Because the defender is defending, the striker is wiping out my monsters, and the St. Gwendolyn monk is making sure the other two have enough balance. You've got to really hammer them to kill them. But if I get them apart, they panic. They know they're dead. And in the meanwhile, you get the gemstone magic users energizing the Amalekite, floating up above the battlefield, using their balance so their lightning bolt doesn't hit their allies, right? And blasting the monsters. And then the monsters all see that guy floating up there, so they all suddenly develop missile weapons that I hadn't mentioned earlier <laughs> to take the magic user out of the sky. And it just gets crazy. The battles just get crazy. And, it, and the coordination that goes on between the team is so much fun to watch. And we were playing for about three sessions. And I went, this is fun. And that's when we decided, let's, let's do this to play a little. So I kept giving them levels. Every week they would make a level. Because we wanted to see how, and what you have, you have skill trees. You have four different, the disciples' skill trees. And there's, you have to take like two of the first tier before you can go to the second tier, that type of thing. And you build yourself down the five tiers. But a lot of people do hybrids. So they'll take one over in gemstone so they can use the gemstone magic, right? And they'll take, um, they'll take one over here so they get more balance, but they're going down the defense tree or whatever. And you're watching them build their characters. We had, at one point, we had eight people around the table. There are only four different disciples. We had eight different characters completely. We had one defender who was using provoke, so all the attacks were on him. We had another defender who was using a skill that allowed him to block for other people. So all the attacks might have been on them as well. We had my monk, this was, when this happened, I was actually playing and, and my friend was running the game. My monk was an agility, St. Gwendolyn type monk who was giving balance back. I was kind of controlling the battle. I would look around who's in trouble, make sure they got their, you know, helping them out, going over and helping out with all the fights. The other agility monk, on the other hand, was doing a thing called open the floodgates. So he'd stand near the, it was Gino, who's cheats. I, he makes me crazy. <laughs> he showed up for our first session, and I'm going along, and I'm, I'm using, like, I'm going to use a balance point and do shared calm, which gives balance back, and I strike. And Gino comes back, and he goes, and so I'm using, like, one balance point, and I'm doing this, and I'm feeling good because I helped. And Gino comes back, and he's got nine balance points. And in one round, he says, alright, I'm going to use a balance point for shared calm. I'm going to hit this monster here, I'm going to open the floodgates, and I'm going to, another balance point, I'm going to use unbalancing strike. So open the floodgates means the other monk can swing, and unbalancing strike means that monster can't use his defenses against the other monk. So he does boom, 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 three balance. Boom, boom, I'm like, oh, wow, that's a great combo. I didn't think of that. He goes, I'm using flurry of blows, another balance point. Now I'm swinging at this monster. I'm doing shared combo against so you two get another point back. I'm using open the floodgates, and I'm doing unbalancing strike on this monster, you hit him. And I look at him, I go, you suck. <laughs> but that was when I knew. That was when I knew this game is worth it because it's a game that's really easy to play, but you can no two characters will be alike, and you can if you if you think and think and think you can play it really really well. Of course, the downside to that was now Gino's got two balance points left. That's it. 
So if somebody isn't helping him, he's going to get wasted in a hurry. And that's the game. And I got to tell you, I'm having fun. <sighs> Thanks for that question. Since you brought it up, I think it's only fair that you share a little bit of a story to those who haven't been able to hear it. Everybody in here has heard it. No, it's his first time. <laughs> Who's heard Rubble Wubble? I can tell him the story. That's actually not bad. All right. All right. We got time. I'm looking at my, my time piece here. All right. I will tell you Wubble Wubble. Wubble Wubble is why I play games. Okay? You have to pay attention. There will be a quiz. We were playing in that Mike Ledger dungeon. Mike Ledger, who... Dear friend of mine, played D&D with him for 20 years. And a little side note, after 38 Studios collapsed, he is now running Team 1 at Blizzard. So Mike's made it. He's doing great. We're in the Mike Ledger's dungeon. You know you're in the Mike Ledger's dungeon because by the time you hit third level, you will find a wand of wonder with unlimited charges. <laughs> and about 10 different tables that Mike had set up. Not just the one from the book. And you know it's a wand of wonder with unlimited charges on Mike's tables because on the side of it, it says wubble wubble. I don't know why. You can ask Mike. So we're playing a Ravenloft campaign. Has anyone played Ravenloft? Great campaign. I never want to meet the sick <laughs> people who came up with those dungeons, man. That's some bad stuff. So we're playing a Ravenloft campaign. And I'm playing a halfling psionicist named Oliver DeBurrows, of course. And we find a Wubba Wubba World. And we rolled, and I won it. And the beauty of this is I'm a psionicist, so a lot of times I don't have anything to do because I'm out of my sound power, so I'm just watching everyone else. But now I've got a wall, wall, wall. And I know it's got unlimited charges, so I'm not worried about using it. Like, oh, there's a spider there, blah, 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 you know? <laughs> hey, did that sheep escape, blah, 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 You know, it's like, so I've got my wall, wall, one, and we had this guy in the group named Tommy. And Tommy's a 6'4 prison guard, we thought he's like the toughest guy in the world, but we knew he was a marshmallow. So, as it turned out, every time Oliver used the Wubble Wubble Wand, no matter what, Tommy got kicked. <laughs> you know, we'd be, we'd be going in to fight a, a red dragon, so Tommy would throw on his fire protection gear, and he'd go rubbing him, running in by us, and I'd yell Wubble Wubble and hit him with a cone of cold. <laughs> Or we'd be being chased by giants, and I reached back and said, Wubble Wubble, and Tommy's feet grew. And he tripped and fell, and the giant crushed him. <laughs> We're on the edge of a cliff, and the dragon's coming at us. Like, ooh, Wubble Wubble, and the gust of wind comes up behind Tommy. <laughs> and this went on every week. I think it reached its, its zenith when we were in a battle, and we had won the battle. 
And Tommy was like, and he lifts his sword in victory. And I did, wubba wubba, because I didn't realize the battle was over. And he grounded that lightning bolt. Just <laughs> no matter what happened, no matter what happened, I think I turned this horse into a mouse. And he was a paladin. He wasn't happy. But every, it got to the point where we're in battle. Take out my one! And just, Tommy throws dice across the room. Because he knew! He knew he was doomed. So we're playing Ravenloft, like I said. And something weird happened. It's Ravenloft. But this area where we were standing got torn out of the world and put into like an extra dimension. So we're like up in space on a football field-sized field. That's it. There's no houses, there's no monsters. And so I kind of looked at Mike, I said, so we're going to be farmers, I guess. <laughs> but, but, we had a wizard who could teleport. But, we had one too many living characters <laughs> to teleport. But, we had a bag of holding. <laughs> and a rod of resurrection. <laughs> so do the math. <laughs> so we drew lots with percentage dice. <laughs> and I lost. And so Mike says, okay, Bobby's dead. You're going to, you know, Jimmy, you're going to teleport. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, 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 no. I'm not dead like that. I get to go out my way. So I took off all my gear and I put it in a nice little pile because I didn't want to break anything. And I used my psionic powers to levitate you know, way up. And so now I'm, I'm hundreds of feet in the air and I just stayed up there until my psionics expired and did a big swan. And Mike goes, okay, Bobby's dead. Then Tommy goes, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so Tommy you a little rat. <laughs> and he picks up his pencil like a wand and he goes, I'm taking his wand and I'm falling. And he goes, ha, wubba wubba. And he rolls his dice. And Mike looks at the table and the blood drains from his face. Caster and target change place. <laughs> was that, okay, so we're fighting, and I knock this elf down, right? And I go over, my, my, my bugbear takes out the elf. Boom, you're down. He goes over here. So the elf is down there bleeding. And the cleric sneaks over and heals him. And he jumps back up and starts beating on the bugbear again. And I always thought, well, wait a minute. Do that 
once, you know, fool me once, shame on me, right? The next time a guy goes down, why is that bugbear just like whacking him good? So in the Demon Wars Reformation book, we've got little sections called Bob's House Rules. <laughs> Absolutely. And the way I've designed the death system is that my bugbear can hit him. Doesn't mean he's dead. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, but the way these things are designed, the way I'm trying to put them in, is that Wubba Wubba story I just told. Because the best thing about gaming is when you, you, the, you know you've made it as a gamer, when you sit down to play and you realize you've been playing for 10 or 15 years and half your session is just talking about things that happened in the old games. Because gaming is about storytelling and it's about memories. And that's what Bob's House Rules are all about. I'm trying to find ways to make the dice rolling translate for you the way they do for us into storytelling. And uh, so in, if you're playing in a game that I'm running in Demon Wars and you fall down, expect to get smacked <laughs> really, really hard repeatedly. See, in my games, that just means the monster is circling after the cleric. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> No, we still got time, so we still got a few minutes. Um, I started reading your books a year ago, and they're one of the few books that my roommate came back in from work three days later and said, you're still reading. <laughs> um, and also, the next time I was DMing, the paladin, the paladin of the group was a writer. So that was very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Did he have armor that was sentient? <laughs> No, because you're both, and it seemed like he was not a driver, and whenever a party member tried to do something that wasn't good, he whipped, whipped, just whipped the robe off, and, the, and, and everyone else in the party then had to roll a fear check. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's Send me the details, I'll put them in the dark. Okay, so that. Um, half party also had our focus, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the question I have is combat scenes. I um, done some amateur writing and I'd like to continue, but I've always had an issue writing in combat scenes. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, um, how do you, how can, how do you write combat scenes and or what, sure. or what experience do you take from them? Well, there's a few things. First of all, I play hockey. <laughs> Seriously. And I was, I boxed in high school a little bit and I was a bouncer, paid my way through college as a bouncer. And, you know, one of the things that most people don't understand is that like when you're fighting, where your feet are is, and how you're balanced is more important than where your hands are. It's that simple. So when I'm writing a fighting scene, I just watch them fight and write down what I say. But I do a few other things too. And you'll probably, now you're going to know it because I'm going to tell you. Now you're going to notice it. The sentences get short. Don't spend a lot of time in people's heads. The whole point for me of writing a combat scene is I want it's like, it's, to me it's like you're watching it on, in a movie and I want your pulse to be pounding. That, and I want mine to be pounding when I'm writing it. So, you know, there's smoke coming off the keyboard because I'm, I'm going faster and faster. The sentences are getting shorter. And I'm watching the combatants and I'm saying where, and I'm just watching it in my head and writing it down. 
The writing techniques are excise any and all uses of the verb to be. No was, no were, no to be. Get rid of it. Active voice. Every verb should be an action verb. Something is happening constantly. Shorter sentences. And watch the fight. Watch it. And I'm not telling you, well, get in fights to learn how to fight. Don't ever do that. <laughs> but maybe watch some old boxing matches. You know, go, go Google Foreman Frazier or Ali Frazier and watch those fights and watch their feet. Even more than MMA, I would say, look at boxing fights, because MMA is more like uncontrolled chaos. But watch, watch their feet. You know, writing a battle scene is understanding human form and the way it moves. And the balance. And uh, I just watch it. I just watch it. But the verb to be is not your friend in the battle scene. Sounds like a little thing. And then the other thing, if you watch, for anyone who's a writer in here, I know this is a lot. Just watch out for verbal repetitiveness. If you're using a word or a phrase more than once in a sentence, it will slow down the reader. And if you're slowing down the reader in a fight scene, the pulse stops pounding. So watch out for that. That'll be 20 bucks. <laughs> People just go, what? Yeah. <laughs> a fat friend fear. Brother and fat friend fear. The monastery of the yellow rose. Um, can you explain a little more then about that aside from you wanted to write another book? Or because he has some very critical roles, including sneaking up on drifts when he's had one of his little talks to himself. There's a lot of things about a fat friend fear that are in the books that are very subtle. Have you picked up on the really subtle things about him? Yes. Oh, I think that one you can ruin. Okay, namely the fact that Dalai is gay. Imagine that. Yeah. And it's not a big deal? No, not the least. He's a really interesting character. And he's someone who fell for love. And the dwarf is trying to pull him back. <laughs> no, you dope. They don't like you much up there. You know? And um, Amber and Afafrin Fair, when they go into Stonecutter's Solace, so here we get this monk, it's first edition type monk, and the dwarf goes in there, and they and they, now they travel in Madrid, and they go in, I'll set the same for you, and the dwarf looks around and goes, okay, this will work, because they're, they're having boxing matches, they're having fights in the, in the tavern. Well, this dwarf is sitting next to a high-level monk who doesn't look like much, and the dwarf proceeds to relieve everyone of their gold and well-placed bets as a fashion fear beats the ever-loving tire out of the entire place. I love that character. Um, another one of the side characters that shows up in my books that I don't really know anything about when I put them in the book. They're filling roles. In the scene in, I think it was Neverwinter, I think it was in Neverwinter. I could be wrong about the book, but where they get ambushed, and we first see the monks, 
in the, in the Cavus Dune group, the, the mercenary group that comes after Drizzt and Dalek. He wasn't supposed to live. Neither was the dwarf. But after I split everything apart, I realized, wait a minute. There's more to this character, the dwarf. And maybe the monk, too. And that's how it happens for me. I mean, Dahlia was never supposed to live through Gondolgrim. But these characters, I'm learning about them. I'm getting to know them. And they're telling me things that all of a sudden, wait a minute. It's like Tracy Hickman's Kill at Breakfast, right? If you keep me entertained, I'll let you live. <laughs> and these characters start keeping me entertained. And they live. And then I learn more about them as we go along. And that's how it happened. It was, it's a completely organic process for me. I'm meeting the characters as I'm introducing them in the book. And then, you didn't entertain me. But you're pretty cool. Stick around a little longer. We can talk about this. And as it turned out, that duo of Amber Grease the Dwarf, Amber, Amber Gristle O'Mall of the Adbar O'Malls, and that brother of Catherine Fair of the Monastery of the Yellow Rose entertained me a lot. And I love when that happens. And the best example I have of that is when I was writing the Demon War books, the first trilogy, these are huge books, and I've got scores of characters in them. Because I'm defining a world with the Demon Awakens, the Demon Spirit, and the Demon Apostle. But because it centers on a church, a lot of the and it's a world that, you know, the, the things that happen have to, the, the news has to travel across the world, basically. So it's almost like the scene in Camelot, right, where the page boy comes running in and says, you know, King Arthur, so-and-so, Lancelot, Lancelot approaches the gate, right? So I've got my characters in this monastery, St. Maribel, and I have this, I have to have a monk keep coming in, these different monks keep coming in and telling them what's going on in the world as the information's coming into them in these scenes where they're making the strategic decisions about the world. And so instead of just, I didn't want to keep saying, the monk said, the monk said, the monk said. So I just gave one a name, right? It's basically a red shirt guy on Star Trek who got a name. And as an homage to uh, Walter Miller and the brilliant Canical Philebowitz. If you have not read Canical Philebowitz, please go get it and read it immediately. It's one of the best speculative fiction books ever written. It's just wonderful. I named him Brother Francis. After Brother Francis, as, as an homage to Miller, that wonderful book. And I didn't think anything of it. He's a red shirt monk that just keeps showing up. And then I started writing Mortalis. And I got about halfway through Mortalis. And I went, oh my God, this is Brother Francis's book. And I realized the story I told of Francis, of how he had gotten to that miserable place where he was, through the courageous actions he was about to take, and all the way to the end of his story, was one of the most complete stories I had ever told about any character in my life. It's one of the reasons why Mortalis is my favorite book, is Brother Francis. And I had no idea that this guy was going to have this role. And that's what makes it fun for me. And you know, the other thing about this journey and the way I approach my writing, it's gotten to the point for many years now for me, if Drift is acting out of character or any of his friends are acting out of character, I don't say, oh, he's out of character and hit delete. I say, why is he acting out of character? 
What's bothering you? What's going on here, really? It took me three books to figure out that Catherly, the priest of the near, was agnostic. It took me three books before I realized, well, that's why he's miserable. And I think it's gotten to the point now where readers have come to trust me enough that I know what I'm doing here with these characters, that when they see a character acting out of character, they don't go, well, that doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't do that. They say, okay, what's going on with him? So I think the readers are going in the same direction as I am. And that's the way I do it. It's very organic with the characters. And that's where Africa came from. He was supposed to die in that field. But he didn't. And now he's, one of, he's a character I hope to really explore in the future. And that brings us to 559. 559. Well, thank you all for coming.